0: Uh, today, we begin Mark chapter 7. Uh, we're continuing on in <coughs> our normal series uh, this week. Uh, next week, we depart and uh, return to messages from Handel's Messiah, um, talking about uh, the, the triumphal entry, and then again uh, for the Resurrection Day. We'll do uh, texts that he used in uh, his work, The Messiah, so... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard passage. Jesus is uh, confronting uh, the Pharisees and the scribes just as much as they confront him in the midst of this. And and so as Jesus confronts the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus in many ways is confronting us. And So give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to listen. Um, that this would not Uh, fall on stony hearts and stony ground. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. One of the joys of... I also need to have a line behind me. I keep moving back. Uh, One of the joys of uh, COVID-19 is the reestablishment of hand-washing. Um, it seems strange uh, to me that suddenly soap would disappear from all the shelves. It makes one to believe that uh, there's not been a whole lot of hand washing going on uh, around our country. Uh, I remember years ago when I worked for Winter Haven Hospital in Florida, uh, that at, during the orientation period, one of the ladies giving the orientation time said, I've watched you in the restrooms washing your hands and you're not washing long enough. So uh, today, we're almost suspect of people. Are they actually washing their hands? And this points out to the fact, I think, that uh, not washing one's hands isn't a new problem. Uh, Mothers have been telling their children for eons to wash their hands before they come to the dinner table. Not a new problem. But it was also a problem for a different reason in Jesus' day. And so let's get to that. Okay, The popularity of Jesus that we were talking about meant that uh, Jesus not only drew the sick to be healed, uh, but he also drew or attracted the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees were already in Galilee. It was the scribes, most likely, that came up from Jerusalem. But what's interesting is they synagogued together. Now, that's not actually what they did, but the verb there is the one we transliterate and, and get the idea of synagogue. So they've gathered together uh, to, con- to convene and talk about this Jesus that is uh, so popular and is stirring up so much trouble within Galilee the scribes of course uh, were interpreters of the law they were the official interpreters of the law and the pharisees were f- sort of fundamentalists of their day and I, I want to be clear about what i mean by that and there are, there's two aspects to that that i want to that i want to be clear about and one is they were orthodox in their theology generally speaking uh, as we're going to see they they really didn't have a good theology of grace but they were orthodox they were conservative in their understanding of scripture uh, they they believed that the lord the god is was one and they held to the scriptures and uh they were orthodox but they were also separatists And as we think about the modernist fundamentalist uh, controversy that took place in America and other parts of the world uh, back in the 1920s and things like that, one of the defining marks of fundamentalists was a withdrawal withdrawal from society. They did not want to be um, tainted by society, and the Pharisees were part of that tradition. Of course, they preceded that tradition, uh, but they were separate trying to separate themselves from the contamination that came from Rome, unlike the Herodians and the Sadducees. So they were essentially a holiness movement uh, within Israel at that point in time. Okay? So that's what I mean by fundamentalists. Uh, you don't have to interpret some other meaning by that. But what is the accusation of the scribes and the Pharisees? And we, we see this in verses 1 through 5. Uh, and what it is is they saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. And the, the idea here is not that they were just dirty, okay? It's not that uh, you know, they had been playing in the mud and now we're trying to eat, okay? It's not like a mom, but they were defiled or ceremonially unclean. And so it was an, the aspect of uh, ceremonial cleanliness that was that issue, not physical cleanliness that was at issue now, because this is written to Rome, and uh, many of the, the Roman Christians were uh, unfamiliar with the laws of the Pharisees or the rules of the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, Mark explains that in this long uh, parenthetical statement that we find there. Um, but what I want us to remember is that they were holding to the tradition of the elders and many other traditions that they observed. It's not a question of the law of God. It's a question of the tradition of the elders. Now, when they washed... Uh, they would often use these handfuls of water before meals. So, washing the hands before the the meal was usually a handful of water uh, that you would cover. You know, you would pour over the other hand and kind of do that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> when they came back from the marketplace, uh, they would wash their hands. They would dip, and yes, the word is baptizo. Um, enough out of you. Uh, but they would dip their fingers in, not the whole hand, they would just dip the fingers in because of the ceremonial contamination they believe they got in the marketplace because you don 't know where that produce has been, okay, uh, but they talked as well about uh, cleaning pots and pans, and even as, it, as Mark mentions, the dining couches that they were reclined upon, they would ceremonially purify them, and this is why, in the wedding of Cana, they had those gigantic um, yeah. that it falls out of my head. Uh, you know, the, the water containers, the storage containers for the ceremonial water that would be used throughout the course of the wedding that Jesus used to turn water into wine. We see something of this in Hebrews 6 when this is con- these, this instruction about washings or baptisms. uh, The laying on of hands and, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment were considered to be the elementary doctrines of the faith, and they were supposed to be moving beyond this. And so this seemed to be elementary stuff. But what is going on with these washings that are connected to the tradition of the elders? Well, we see in places like Exodus 30 that the priests were supposed to do these hand washings uh, when they began their service within the temple. Uh, they were to use the, the labor that was there as part of the tabernacle and then the temple, and they were to, to wash their hands, to ceremonially cleanse them, while they then went out to uh, perform sacrifices and uh, give uh, priestly blessings and these things. And that was for the priests, We see in Leviticus that when mold had had gotten a household, uh, you were supposed to take the pots and pans in order to be cleansed so that they would not have or spread mold. And so that's part of the cleanliness laws, but specifically tied to mold. Now, what happens here in the tradition of the elders or oral law is that they were then extended to all of the people. And this was initially in the time of Jesus uh, happening orally, okay? It was not written down. It would later be written in the Mishnah in the second or third century after Jesus uh, had already come, died, and been raised. But at this point, it's oral tradition. And so the accusation is found here in this, this sentence, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? That's really what they want to know from Jesus. They've observed that they don't wash their hands before they eat, and therefore they're asking them, why is it your disciples who are under your authority, Jesus, who are taking their lead from you, Jesus, so it's not just an accusation about his disciples, this is really an accusation to Jesus to put Jesus on the spot. Why do they not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Jesus, why aren't you teaching them to follow the tradition of the elders? And do you yourself follow the tradition of the elders? And so this is, in that day and at that time, a very serious accusation which is meant to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the average person. Tradition was viewed by the Pharisees and the scribes as expressing True, authentic holiness. And so if, if the disciples are not walking according to the tradition of the elders, then the real problem is they're not holy. The real problem is they're not righteous. The real problem is uh, they need to be avoided. Now, we see in a 2nd century B.C. prayer by a layman. Interesting. Blessed be thou, O Lord, King of the universe, who sanctified us by thy laws and commanded us to wash the hands. That was something that they would do while they were doing these washings, these ceremonial washings and baptisms. But they are confusing what the scribes and the Pharisees have commanded them to do with what God commands them to do. The common people sometimes didn't follow this. They were the unwashed masses. Slight variation on that theme, but they were considered to be sinners. And because they were ceremonial and clean, you had a form of uh, social distancing on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees. Separation, ostracization of those people on the basis of whether or not They followed the oral tradition. They evaluated, in other words, holiness by compliance to these extra biblical and external regulations. We live in a day where that happens very easily.
1: Um, It's allergy season.
0: I have allergies, I cough. I pretty much cough from January to May as uh, one of our members had mentioned earlier today and and yet some establishments look like you know mentioned don't come if you're coughing does that mean I can't go to your establishment from January to May right now even though I'm coughing for reasons besides illness it's just allergies uh, the same person had their daughter uh, accidentally sneeze at the grocery market and everyone gave the look. If you've gotten the look, you know the look. It's like, what are you doing here? You're going to kill us all. That's the look. There's a, there's a, there's something, not just social distancing and keeping proper space, but now there's a judgment that's included because you had the audacity to have an allergy attack. Assuming the worst about you, that you are a carrier of a deadly disease. See, this is how it functions. Oftentimes, we we create hedges. This is is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Uh, They didn't want you to break God's law, so they created this hedge to prevent you from getting close to breaking God's law. So, for instance, um, there's a particular university in South Carolina that Uh, Some of my friends have gone to, and they had the six-foot rule. Uh, If you were dating, you couldn't be within six feet of each other. They were so afraid of uh, premarital sex uh, that they had the six-foot rule. That's creating a a hedge. Now, if you want to create a hedge for yourself, that's okay. Okay, If you know your weakness and you're trying to protect yourself from your weakness, uh, that's all right. Right? but when you turn it into a rule by which you then begin to judge everyone else, that's the problem, and that's what the Pharisees did. They then, they began to hold everyone else accountable to these unwritten laws that they're giving uh, the same status as God's law, and judging people. So we've seen this in numerous ways. Uh, Some people, it's drinking. They think that that they believe by conscience or perhaps by uh, experience that they could, they should not drink, and that's okay if they choose not to drink, but what they often do is then say that you shouldn't drink, even though there's no command of God uh, to, to prohibit the use of alcohol. Dancing is another great one uh, that often happens. Uh, David danced before the Lord, but for some reason we're not supposed to dance, and um, If dancing is uh, too risque for you, that's fine. Don't dance, okay? But also, you shouldn't be judging others who choose to dance unless, of course, their dancing is in and of itself lewd. Movies. I remember one of my friends at seminary said he grew up in a more fundamentalist church when he was a kid and you could not go to the cinema. Uh, that was bad. That's, that's, bad things happened at the cinema, and you know, way back when, when that's where kids hung out, sometimes in the balcony, and bad things did happen up there, but that's the problem of the people, not the problem of the cinema. And so it was okay to watch a movie <clears throat> at home with Blockbuster, see how old this is, <laughs> but you couldn't go to the cinema Last one, I remember uh, when I was growing up, I mean, after I'd just become a Christian, um, a lot of people were talking about whether, one, whether or not there could be Christian rock and roll, and there were some people who were against it because you couldn't redeem rock and roll, okay? Larry Norman was wrong in their eyes, all right? The devil should have all the good music. Uh, Or secondly, whether you could listen to secular music. These were big questions that were raging in the community in which I had was as a young Christian and these are really questions uh, that are not settled in God's law and oftentimes we use them to uh, criticize and judge others what you may listen to may not be what others are able to listen to I didn't throw out or burn my record collection uh, but there's certain songs I choose not to listen to uh, because of their content of the lyrics. That's how I've, I've come across it. And so the, really, in answering that initial question, is that pe- people judge righteousness by their rules, not God's rules. And this is not something that's just the Pharisees. It's something right now, today. Secondly, second question that arises from this is, what is the response of Jesus? And we see his response primarily in verses 6 through 8. Uh, we know from last week when we were looking at this, uh, the, the people who wanted to be healed laid laid hold of the, the fringes of his garment, which uh, I believe was the tassels of his garment, which were commanded. Okay, So Jesus is an obedient Jew. Uh, Jesus is one who, as it says in Galatians, was born of a woman and born under the law and kept the law. And so uh, Jesus was very concerned about the law of God. So much that even something that seems inconsequential to you and me tassels, uh, Jesus wore. And so uh, now they're accusing Jesus, who's observant of God's law, with essentially being unobservant of God's law. And Jesus responds to them with a charge of hypocrites. That's not a light charge. Uh, this is, of course, the idea of one who wears a mask, it, because it was taken from, this word was taken from the theater, and in the theater of the Greeks, people wore masks to convey happiness or sadness, anger. Uh, that's how they displayed their emotions, because you didn't have a full troop of, of actors. And so to be one thing on the surface, but something else underneath is the idea that is conveyed by this idea of hypocrisy. And Jesus goes to Isaiah 29 to explain the hypocrisy to them. He says that, that Isaiah was right in speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees when he wrote this, when he prophesied this. It was true about the people of Isaiah's day, and it's just as true of the people, the religious people of Jesus' day. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It looks good externally. Uh, It sounds good externally, because there are words of praise that are coming out of lips, but Jesus, quoting Isaiah, Indicates that the heart wasn't engaged in what the lips were saying. There's a disconnect between these things. The heart was actually far from God, but it doesn't look that way externally. It's easy to go through the motions of life, go through the motions of love, go through the motions of worship, and still have a heart that is disconnected. To God, or from God, that is uninvolved really with God, and that is distracted from God. Back when we were going through the, the meals with Jesus in the book of Luke, we came across um, the time when Martha and Mary were um, having Jesus and his disciples over for dinner, and Mary is listening, and Martha is all worried about the dishes. And then Martha comes and complains to Jesus about Mary. Tim Chester notes this. Martha is distracted from hearing the word of God by anxieties. Martha is not an enemy of the word, but she's distracted. We're distracted by our careers, homes, holidays, gadgets, Image and investments. So it's not just that the Pharisees were a distracted people, but the reality is is that we're often very distracted people as well. Now, with Hebrew poetry, there's often parallelism that takes place, and we see that in the second part of this quotation from Isaiah, um, because it says, In vain do they worship me. And so, that honoring with the lips was in vain. Okay? Teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. Why was their heart far from God? Precisely because their teaching was the commandments of men, not the commandments of God. They thought... They had gained everything. They thought that they were pleasing God, but in fact, they were gaining nothing. It was worthless worship that was taking place by them. God's word was supposed to show them how to worship him, how to serve him. But they became distracted by all their rules that got stuck on top of the word of God. I suffer from ADD. There's certain things I can multitask with. Uh, My administrative assistant will tell you that it looks like I'm working. (laughs) Well, I'm listening to music. I can listen to music. I can listen to podcasts. And somehow this works within my brain. But there's certain things uh, that create a deficit of attention in me. And one of them would be children. So I can't work at home. When I, well, at least I couldn't when I had younger kids that were noisy all the time. Uh, I could probably work from home now. Um, but for a long time, I couldn't because it was just too distracting. And now that we're having to do uh, school by distance, uh, some of my kids have classes uh, in a, an educational community center. And now that's online. And so they were, my son was doing uh, uh, preparation for his class online, and it was essentially like Zoom, but it wasn't Zoom. And someone had a bunch of birds, and so all you hear is the chirping and the squawking of these birds in their house. And I'm just like, Oh my God, my God, I gotta get out of here! I can't imagine how hard it would have been, been for my son to try and pay attention and learn in that because he struggles in a similar way as I do. Okay, and I just I, I had to leave. There's no way I, I could, I, could I, I thanked my daughter. Thank you that you didn't want birds. We have two dogs, we have two cats, and we've had a, an endless stream of hamsters. But thankfully no birds because birds just can't stop. <laughs> and that's what drives me crazy. We have spiritual ADD. We struggle from this. We're continually distracted from God by everything else. All of our little idols that we have continually distract us. And in this case, the rules that we create continue to distract us from God's word and God's law. And what's interesting here is that Jesus is rejecting the authority of of their tradition, this tradition of the elders, he's rejecting it on the basis of the authority of God's word. It's not just, well, I say to you, but Jesus actually brings them back to the word of God that they're supposed to care so much about and says, this speaks against you. Not me speaking against you, but this speaks against you. Jesus clarifies, you leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. They neglected, they abandoned, they ignored the commands of God in various ways in order to hold fast to theirs. It's as if you're trying to hold something in your hand. Well, you can't hold two things in your hand. I can't, it's hard for me to hold this mug And other things. And so, in order to hold to the tradition of the elders, represented by said pen here, they have to let go of the commands of God to hold the pen. That's what they're doing. They're laying down, they're putting it aside so that they can pick up, hold, and keep the commandments of men, the tradition of the elders. He repeats this precisely to provide emphasis to them. They needed to understand this. They were attentive to their own rules, uh, but in their attentiveness to their own rules, uh, they were slighting or ignoring the words of God. We can't have both, even though it might seem wise to us, uh, just as it talked about in Colossians 2 that Rick read for us. There's an appearance of wisdom that's there. But there's no real holiness that's there because you're, dis- you're distanced and disconnected from the head, Jesus, from whom all true holiness actually flows. True holiness is not about law-keeping. It's about the heart, what the heart loves and the direction the heart is moving. They sought, essentially, to establish a religion without grace, You received grace because you kept the laws and their um, theological blip, similar to what we find in uh, Mormonism today. These rules that that they established were rules that were essentially fairly easy to keep. I mean, how hard is it, really, to wash your hands? How hard is it to wash your pots? They were trying to establish a fake righteousness. Or, well, a righteousness of their own, but in reality it's a counterfeit righteousness because it's not the righteousness God asks for. It's fake. It's, it's presented as if it's the real thing, but it's not. It's not a genuine righteousness. It's a sad replacement and substitution for the true righteousness that God wants. Humans are legalists at heart, and we multiply rules like rabbits or like tribbles, if you're a Star Trek fan. And we establish them not just for ourselves, but we establish them to bind the consciences of others. Back in uh, 99, a bunch of friends and I went to England and Scotland and uh, the last stop of our trip was Oxford. Uh, You know, we wanted to spend time in CS Lewisville, so to speak. And we stayed at a bed and breakfast. And I don't think there was a wall in that bed and breakfast that didn't have a sign with some sort of rule on it. (laughs) It was as if any time a problem came up with one particular uh, customer that stayed at the bed and breakfast, this guy decided he had to make a rule out of it, you know, to prevent that from ever happening again. Don't you hear that a lot in the press? We We must make sure this never happens again. No matter what it is, this must never happen again, and we multiply the rules.
1: That's the
0: human heart. That's what we do. And Jesus here is rejecting our attempts to establish a righteousness of our own through laws that we think we can keep. Jesus is saying that it is really your heart that matters. And when we get back from Resurrection Day, we're going to find what Jesus says about the heart, and it ain't pretty. Okay? But here's the good news. In the new covenant, Jesus offers us a new heart. He promises in Ezekiel 36 to remove the heart of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. Another way of putting that would be to remove the heart of unrighteousness and to grant us a heart that longs for him. A heart that has a new direction. A heart that has new desires. And so Jesus is calling the Pharisees and us to repent of our attempts to establish our own righteousness. And so Jesus focuses on the direction of the heart. Third question that sort of arises for me, anyway, as I work through this text is how does Jesus prove his point? And we see that in verses 9 through 13. The Pharisees were probably confused by this allegation of hypocrisy. They're probably confused by Jesus mentioning Isaiah 29:13. Uh, you know, they're probably like, Whoa, oh, wait a minute, what do you mean, Jesus? What are you really talking about here, Jesus? He probably saw the looks in their faces of the amusement b- b- of all of this, the uncertainty of all of this. And so Jesus provides a one way in which they laid aside the word, the commandments of God in order for the tradition of the elders. It refers to the command that we find in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 to honor your father and mother. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He also mentions the penalties that would be incurred for striking your father or mother. And that shows how serious the command is. And so we see, for instance, in Exodus 21, verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. So hitting your parents would be grounds for the death penalty. God takes it pretty seriously, huh? Leviticus 20 for anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother, his blood is upon him. Similarly, we see in Deuteronomy 21, verse 16, Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or mother, and all the people say, Amen. Amen. So in Deuteronomy 21, it's this idea of the people are declaring the blessings and cursings of the covenant. And so this is one of the curses of the covenant that they have made. We see in Ezekiel 22, verse 7, father and mother are treated with contempt in you. Speaking of Israel. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. And so in light of uh, these harsh penalties for mistreatment and dishonoring the parents, we see uh, how lightly they ended up treating that command. Because they said that if you declare korban, which is gift to God, so they're talking about their wealth and whatever wealth they may possess in the future. And they're saying that all of that is a gift to God and therefore don't have to take care of my parents in their old age. Or even if before their old age, they experienced some economic catastrophe. Sorry, mom and dad, can't help you out, Corban. Jesus is calling that a great sin. They slighted this command of God by offering an oath to devote their wealth to God instead of helping the people they should have helped first and foremost. And Jesus really isn't the only one who says this. If we go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's a lot of instruction about the widows and how the church is supposed to interact with the widows and take care of the widows, which is really a good thing. But one of the, one of the uh, stipulations is that widow is actually a widow. And by that we mean, or Paul meant, she didn't have family that would take care of her, okay? This, is a, this would be a woman who had no children. This would be a woman who had no other relatives to take care of her. And Paul says this in verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and in the context here is widows, but you can bring it out beyond that, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, Paul's not talking about, uh, you know, whether or not a parent buys a car for their kid. That's not what he's getting at. What he is getting at is if someone is in destitution and someone is about to to lose everything, the family ought to provide. A believing family ought to take care of its household to make sure that uh, everyone has enough to eat and has clothes. That's a radical concept in our day, partially because um, we've lost the idea of the, extent, the expanded household. Um, you know, we've got the nuclear household. And um, one of my girlfriends, and for my wife who's paying attention, girlfriend number two, uh, I mean, her grandfather lived at their house. Now, that was a burden because I've lost track of how many siblings my girlfriend had. Uh, Let's see, one, two, three, four, five. She had six siblings, not a small family, and yet Grandpa lived there because family matters. And they took seriously commands like this um, to honor him and uh, make sure that he was safe and cared for. Now, this question of... Command of God, tradition of men. I grappled with this this week. Uh, You'll notice that we do not celebrate communion right now, virtually. We're not doing that. And I have reasons for that. And there are also reasons that are provided in our book of church order, And uh, I believe it's chapter 55. Don't remember the particular paragraph. And so there's instructions within our book of church order regarding our worship. So as I was taking one of my walks to try and clear my head and think through things this week, I asked that question in light of this text. Am I resistant because of the traditions of men or am I resistant because of the command of God? That's an important question. I didn't want on the one hand be preparing this message, uh, uh, you know trying to distance us from the commands of men, and then on the other hand, embracing the commands of men uh, when it comes to this idea of worship, uh, sorry communion, uh, virtually, meaning, I say the words and you're at home breaking up your bread and drinking your wine or juice whatever may you may have. And I believe that the BCO commandments are rooted in Scripture, particularly in First Corinthians 10 and 11. So it's the command of God, not the tradition of men. But I also want to make sure that I treat my brothers who disagree with me fairly. Um, so... Important question, but here it is this crisis brings us to a place where I have to ask that question, and we often probably should end up at a similar place asking that question: is is what I'm asking and of, of that person, and what I'm judging that person for? Is it really based on the Word of God, or is it really just my tradition?
1: Is it something Jesus tells us to do? Or is it something I'm
0: telling the other person to do? Part of what is going on here is that we see that the disciples are being called to forsake the tradition of the elders. They're being called to forsake the righteousness of men, and they're being, uh, as, as counterfeits that they really are, and they're being challenged to embrace the righteousness of Jesus, the only one who ever kept the law. And if we go a little bit further in this Gospel of Mark, we see that they're also called to embrace the death of Jesus in their place for their disobedience to the law of God. And so uh, while the Gospel is not staring us directly in the face completely in this text, this text brings us to the Gospel. What what righteousness are you relying upon? Is it a righteousness of your own, or is it the righteousness that Jesus gives you? Because any righteousness of your own is flawed and unacceptable to him. Because as it says repeatedly throughout the scriptures, there is no one who seeks after God. No, not one. There is no one who does good. There is no one who is righteous, Romans 3. We desperately need the righteousness of Jesus and not our own. And so real righteous, real discipleship, rather, delights in God's law. We saw that uh, Psalm 119 that Rick read from. Uh, there's a whole lot more to Psalm 119, but it's all the same thing over and over again in different words, okay, in this acrostic poem. And the whole point is that's how a redeemed heart looks at the law of God, as good, as beautiful. We see the similar thing in Romans uh, 7 and 8 and how the heart responds to the law of God. Paul, in his redeemed state, loved the law of God even though he found he couldn't keep the law of God. But the mind of enmity is hostile to the law of God, is what Paul says in chapter 8 of Romans. That's part of why I believe that when Paul wrote that stuff about, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? He's writing as a redeemed person, as a justified person, regenerate person, not as a non-Christian. Real discipleship forsakes these rules that people make but it delights in what God has told us to do. It delights in the righteousness of Christ because we can't ultimately keep those laws. But it it rejoices from the newness of heart that Jesus gives to sinners. And so hearts close to God delight in the law of God. If we were to kind of take these three strands together, I think what they would say is, Disciples abandon the righteousness of men to cling to the righteousness of Christ. Well, washing your hands is generally a good thing. I encourage that. And it's not just during COVID-19 crisis here. Uh, But like many of those things, uh, we tend to turn it into a law that judges others. We socially distance ourselves from them, not out of love, but rather out of fear the fear of catching something and for the pharisees it was not disease it was sin the externalization of sin means the externalization of righteousness you might be caught dirty handed but jesus reminds us that the issue is whether we're dirty hearted and jesus comes and offers us a new pure heart jesus Offers to remove our, righteous, our unrighteous rags and give us his robe of righteousness. He calls us to leave that sham righteousness
1: that we try to offer God and that we try to sell to our neighbors. Real Christianity is about the real righteousness of Christ, not the fake righteousness. Of our own design.
0: Let's pray. Father, a hard word. And it's a hard word because uh, all of us should find ourselves in this, in the crosshairs. It's not just the scribes and the Pharisees. It's us. Because this is what we do. Even as Christians, we can struggle with this at times. And so we ask for mercy. And we thank you for your word, which uh, continues to come in places like this to set us free, to remind us of the freedom that we have, been re- we have received in Jesus Christ, so that we do not enslave ourselves once again, as it says in Galatians. And so thank you for this text and those like it that call us to, tr- to look to Jesus and Jesus alone. And uh, by your spirit, help us to do that.